very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Thambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe you'll receive your login immediately. And don't forget to visit sanitasradio.com. Great and enlightening shows over there as well. And to get in touch with me, or if you'd like to be a guest on this show, again, just go to veritasradio.com and click on the contact button. You'll find your options right there. Tonight, we go inside the real X-Files. Not only have the FBI and CIA investigated UFOs, but both agencies have actively tried to conceal that fact from the public. These agencies collected information which, when combined with evidence collected by Air Force intelligence, proves that at least some UFOs are interplanetary craft. Furthermore, top Air Force officials knew this over 60 years ago and covered up this information from the American people. Get ready for the real story of why America's leading intelligence agencies have been genuinely concerned about UFOs and why the problem of UFOs is unlikely to go away anytime soon. All of it with tonight's special guest, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, right now on Veritas. Dr. Bruce McAbee has a Ph.D. in physics and was employed for 36 years at the Naval Service Warfare Center, doing research on numerous projects, including generation of underwater sound with lasers, high-power beam control systems for use in the Strategic Defense Initiative, and defense against chemical and biological attacks. He became seriously interested in the UFO phenomenon in the late 1960s while working for his Ph.D. at the American University. He is the author of many books, including the latest titled The FBI-CIA UFO Connection, The Hidden UFO Activities of USA Intelligence Agencies. And to learn more about Dr. Bruce McAbee and his work, and for a more complete biography, visit our website where we will find links to his. And directly from, I believe, Allen County, Ohio, I would like to welcome Dr. Bruce McAbee. Hello, Dr. McAbee, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you. I always learn searching for the truth. Absolutely. And you know what Veritas means. Truth. truth. By the way, did I say your location correctly, uh, Allen yes, County, I'm, Ohio? Yes, that's correct. Well, it's been 
eight years since we began this program, and I'm surprised that I haven't had one of the top researchers, most respected researchers in the field. So I'm honored to have you here. But first, Dr. Maccabee, since this is your first time on Veritas, why don't you tell us how your research into UFOs began and what motivated it? Growing up in the 50s and 60s, um, I was uh, aware of uh, things going on that were strange, but as a child, I didn't do anything about it, except in high school, I read a book called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by uh, Edward Ruppelt, who was the first director of Project Blue Book. And uh, I wish I had saved the, uh, the short review of the book that I had to write, you know, one of these situations where you have to read so many books per half year of school. And I picked that as one of the books to read. And by the time I got to the end of it, uh, I could see that Rupel was on, was like sitting on the fence and it would take a feather to blow him off into the interplanetary side. But he didn't actually come out and say anything, say UFOs, uh, some UFOs are interplanetary craft. Although we now know that he could well have said that and he could have gotten away with it because the top generals knew it anyway. But I didn't know that when I was a high school kid in the 50s. I really didn't get interested again until um, the mid-60s when there was a flap of sightings in the United States. And that led to congressional hearings, which uh, subsequently led to the special uh, Air Force-funded investigation called uh, the Colorado uh, University Study on UFOs which uh, resulted in a large uh, report that was published in late 68, uh, which basically said, well, the director of the report, Edward Condon, said uh, there was, they hadn't learned anything, and he expected that further uh, efforts by the Air Force wouldn't lead to any worthwhile knowledge, so he may as well forget it, and basically told the Air Force there's no reason in continuing, and they um, closed Project Blue Book in early 69. But I had uh, gone to, I was aware of the newspaper stories of uh, sightings in uh, the Midwest. And uh, when I was at American University getting my Ph.D. in physics, <clears throat> so a couple of guys from an organization that then existed called NICAP, National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomena, came to American University, which is in Washington, D.C., not about a mile from the NICAP office, I guess, and uh, gave a lecture on UFOs. And one of the things they said was, I knew that their headquarters was downtown in Washington, D.C., and one of the things they said was, we're always looking for volunteer help to uh, uh, answer questions and file documents and stuff like that. And so that was, uh, uh, I guess, one of the turning points in my life, in the sense that um, out of all the people who might have heard this uh, lecture and done something about it, I guess I was the only one to actually go down to the... Uh, office and uh, do some work for them. <clears throat> it was sort of a disappointing experience in a sense because uh, NICAP was mentioned in a, in a lot of UFO books back in those days because uh, by the 1968 when I got interested, um, NICAP had already been around for about 10 years, had something like 10,000 members in the United States and uh, was continually uh, harassing the Air Force saying that they're, they were covering up valuable information. And so I went to the office expecting, uh, NICAP, expecting to find a 
in a large office with lots of secretaries running around filing stuff and scientists doing research work and all sorts of things like that. The office was at a place, it was uh, in a row house, not far from what's known as DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., on New Hampshire Avenue, 1536 New Hampshire Avenue. Somebody's, somebody's there right now as I speak. But that's all been uh, rebuilt, torn down and rebuilt in 1968. It was a bunch of row houses. I went to 1536, walked in the door. There wasn't any doorway on there. And then there were stairs. There was a doorway, but no door. And then stairs going upstairs to an upper apartment uh, with a single light bulb lighting the uh, stairway. And I opened the door at the top of the stairway and saw a small room with a bunch of boxes piled all over the place and papers and general uh, mess of stuff. And a broken down little old lady who was running the whole show, uh, Isabel Davis. And uh, over the next some number of months, uh, by going down to the office every now and then, I uh, wrote I wrote up a uh, a answer sheet. A, you might say a, what nowadays called a frequent, frequently asked questions, a FAQ type document, which she typed with a special typewriter in tiny print, so she could fit it all on one page, and then have a, a single page answer to anybody's questions uh, that she could fold up and mail in an envelope. That was the main duty was uh, answering questions and the people mailed in and stuff. But that did give me access to the files. 10,000 UFO reports were <laughs> sitting in filing cabinets at the headquarters of NICAP. <clears throat> and it also connected me up with a investigating group. The NICAP operated through local subcommittees. The subcommittee for Washington, D.C. was, of course, headquartered in Washington, and they met at the uh, NICAP office, and uh, I met some of the people, and we went on investigations. And uh, I was, I guess you could say, fortunate. The first investigations that I took on were not trivial. They uh, actually involved some uh, good reporting by credible people. So I've, I've read stories, uh, testi- essentially testimony by other people who gotten interested in the subject. And their their first investigations have been of, uh, you might say, irrelevant or very poor sightings, and that's turned them off on the whole thing, and they poo-poo it to the two today, I guess. But in my situation, I came up with, against cases that uh, uh, have good detail of uh, strange things happening and uh, apparently credible people, not the town drunk or somebody who is clearly hoaxing or making stuff up, fabricating and all. So that's how I got into it very briefly. Uh, I didn't do anything uh, unique or new in the field. All I did was read up until 1973 when uh, the Conan Report was published in 60, late 68 and early 69. Uh, and the, the, the news media read the introduction by, uh, or the overview by uh, Conan and found his statement that there was basically nothing to it and he didn't think it was worthwhile for the Air Force to continue. And then the Air Force closed Project Blue Book. The general sort of feeling in the press was that UFOs had gone away and would not come back. 
And so there was a, a dull lull, uh, and the, the sighting number of sightings had actually gone down to, there had been a peak in sighting level in 65 and 66, and the sighting rate had diminished after that. So by the time uh, the Connery report came out, it appeared to the press that UFOs had gone away. I knew they hadn't. The people in ICAP knew they hadn't. There were still sightings, but they weren't getting the publicity that they had had before. And then all of a sudden came August 1973, and it's sort of like, we're back. <clears throat> there were sightings in the south, southeast, uh, and a wave that moved around, moved westward and northward into the uh, northwest, and hundreds of sightings from all over the place, including a couple of them that still are mentioned today. The uh, Hickson Parker abduction case at Pascagoula, Mississippi, um, which uh, made national news, and the uh, helicopter case, uh, helicopter driven by Captain Coyne, which was flying along, saw this object approaching, and apparently lifted the helicopter upwards when the helicopter was... The, the pilot the, the pilot had put the uh, helicopter into a dive to avoid what was approaching him, and even though the uh, <coughs> control arm indicated a dive... Uh, the, the thing was actually lifted a couple of hundred feet, or a couple of thousand feet, I guess. So that made national news as well. And there were a lot of sightings that didn't make national news, of course. But the thing is, that was sort of the, uh, the, the spur that got me moving, and I started trying to do some unique research in this field. Took on some cases that uh, sane people wouldn't have, like, for example, McMinnville, Oregon photo case um, and uh, an astronaut case in Gemini 11 and some others <clears throat> and this is what sort of got me started and uh, um, adding to the knowledge about UFO cases and UFO sightings and so on. Well, that that's a great story and uh, just like you, Timothy Good, whom you probably know, also started his research into UFOs when he read uh, Ruppelt's book as well. When you were saying that things calmed down in the 60s and then all of a sudden we're back in the 70s. I was going to say, I grew up in the in one of the corners of the Bermuda Triangle in the Caribbean. I remember very clearly all the sightings because I saw one as a child, which is what propelled me into all of this. But were you one of the pioneers who squeezed information out of the government in matters of UFOs when the Freedom of Information Act became the law of the land? to uh, get the FBI file. And uh, as I point out in the book, you have read, if you read the e-book version. Sure. Uh, it was uh, while doing the memento uh, investigation that I uh, contacted the FBI. Now, from 1974 onwards, I was investigating the, uh, the photographic aspect of the McMinnville case. In the book, the two pictures are there for anybody to see, and they depict some object, which is clearly the real thing or a hoax. There's no halfway point. The Paul Trent pictures, right? Right. I mean, it shows shows a circuit. What well, appears to be a circular object with a raised top section and a pole on the top sticking up. We don't know what the heck this signifies, 
But uh, my impression after years of investigation of it and having talked to Mr. Trent and uh, collected uh, testimony from a whole bunch of other people who knew her, uh, this was not a hoax. But at the, at the beginning of the investigation, I assumed that it probably was. The reason I picked that case was because it was the only photographic case endorsed by uh, the uh, analyst, the photo analyst who worked for the Condon study. His premier case was McMinnville, and he said about that case that all factors investigated seemed to point towards an extraordinary flying object passing within the view of the uh, of the witnesses, and they got two pictures of it. Well, that's pretty strong stuff here. The government, the Air Force, has funded this study, and although Condon, the, the director of the study, said there was nothing to the whole case, and if you read inside his uh, uh, analysis, what Condon has written, he basically poo-poos the Trent case, saying that it's uh, not worthy of investigation. So I, t- I decided, well, this was 74 or seven, late 73, and uh, nobody had picked up on the McMinnville case. You would think that if in a government-funded science investigation, some scientist had made a statement which was, uh, um, well, of, of extreme importance, if correct, that other scientists would have jumped in and uh, said, well, let's find out whether he's correct or not. Instead, it seemed like the whole world ignored uh, this is William Hartman, William Hartman's uh, analysis of the Trent photos. And the fact that he thought it was real, you'd think that other people would have jumped in to either to prove it was real or to prove it was fake, one way whatever. Well, I managed to get a hold of the original negatives and uh, began my investigation in depth, you might say. And uh, by 1975, the Freedom of Information and uh, Privacy Act, FOIPA, came into force. It had been passed a few years before, and it came into force and basically said that uh, you could write to any government organization ask for information uh, that you wanted to ask for, and they could only withhold it if there was some documentable secret reason for... Uh, National reason security. For special security or something like that. Certainly, classified documents didn't have to be released, uh, uh, although they could be if, if they declassified. were declassified first. Anyway, uh, part of the Trent story was that um, Paul Trent said that the, uh, an FBI agent had come right to his, where he was working and interviewed him. And Mrs. Trent talked about two guys who showed up and were throwing objects up into the air and so on, taking pictures uh, at her house. So I thought, well, <clears throat> under the Freedom of Information Act, I could try. Uh, I didn't really think the FBI would give me any personal information on uh, uh, Paul Trent, but I wrote a letter to the FBI in September of 77, <clears throat> or 76, rather, asking, or maybe it was 77, whatever the year was, uh, asking for if... Uh, they could tell me if they had a record, had a file on Paul Trent. I figured uh, they might not be able to tell me what's in the file, but they might be able to tell me if there was a file on him. And I sort of, as a uh, afterthought, put in, "Oh, by the way, anything else you might have on UFOs, please let me know." <clears throat> I didn't expect the FBI to have anything because 
in Rufel's book, which I had read uh, a second time by this time. And Rufel says it is so far as he has no no. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.